Father God, um, God, I ask that you would just bless tonight as we open up your word. We're in the, the fourth book of the Torah, and we're going to try to cover the whole book tonight. And God, I just ask that you would, um, you would be with us. You would help us to unlock some of, the, some of the secrets within, that you would help us to see you clearer. And God, you would give us a deeper appreciation for you and your word uh, through tonight. God, I ask that your presence and your spirit would be here guiding us and leading us, uh, that this is holy for you. Uh, and for no other reason are we doing this, but for you, to know you deeper, to love you more. Uh, that's our goal. I pray that we accomplish that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so you might have heard me say we're going to try to do the whole book tonight. So this is a really audacious goal from me. Um, this is something I feel like I need to get a little bit better at, taking overviews and not digging into small sections as much. So we're going to try to cover the whole book of Numbers. Uh, in doing so, we're really going to look at the themes, the overall story, uh, and some of the main points and try to cover them uh, so we can get a, an understanding of what the book of Numbers is about and how Christ is pictured. So as we dig in, we have the who, what, where, when, why questions. Uh, according to the book, who wrote the book? Moses. This book is attributed to Moses. Jesus attributed this book to Moses as well. Uh, and we'll actually talk about some of the quotations that Jesus made from the book of Numbers. What is the book of Numbers? What is it about? It's the story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. This actually covers 38 years of their history. Now we've had Genesis, which covers a large portion of human history and some Israelite history. Exodus and Leviticus were really covering short periods of time. The book of Numbers is their wandering in the desert. You know, the two years is basically covered by Exodus and Leviticus. The rest of the 38 years of wandering in the wilderness is covered by the book of Numbers. So that answers our question of when on earth was this written? Um, well, the wandering in the desert was somewhere between 1445 and 1405 BC. So this book would have been written during that period, ending before the conquest of the promised land around 1405 BC. Uh, and they were wandering around uh, the Sinai Desert and around the Dead Sea and the Salt Sea and uh, the Red Sea, kind of just aimlessly wandering around that area, around the Sinai Peninsula, for 40 years. And why? Why is this book written? This will actually be answered in the first couple of verses, but it is a census. A census is taken to count the military-aged men in the assembly, and then the Levites are counted separately, since they are not part of the military conquest. Since they are set apart for the priesthood, they are counted separately. But this is to take a census of the military-aged men, and there are actually two censuses taken in the book of Numbers. Um, this is how I'm going to break the book up. Now, there are lots of ways you can divide the book, um, but this is how I'm going to take it. There are the wanderers and the conquerors. The wanderers are the generation that failed to enter the promised land, and they die off before they enter the promised land, except for two people 
Um, and the rest of them are the conquerors, the ones who lead the conquest into the promised land and fulfill the promise that God gave them as they enter Israel and capture it, um, which we'll be covering in a couple of books in the book of Joshua. Now, Christ is pictured in the book of Numbers in several places. So there is the encampment around the tabernacle, which we'll dig into, the bronze serpent, which is in Numbers chapter 21, the star of Jacob, which is a prophecy given in Numbers 24, and the fact that Joshua is the successor to Moses, which is named in Numbers 27, um, verses 18 through 23. There are also the cities of refuge. We are not going to be covering them tonight because we will cover them in the book of Joshua. So they are a picture of Christ. We're going to cover them when they get put into practice in the book of Joshua. But you can mark that down as a picture of Christ as you read the book of Numbers and try to understand that. So that's the who, what, where, when, why um, of what's going on. So the first four verses really give us what Moses is doing, why he's writing these. So Numbers 1 through 4. Numbers 1, 1 through 4. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So, no, they are in the second year after leaving Egypt. So the first two years were covered, again, between Exodus and Leviticus. We are now in the third year, and the rest of the 38 years of wandering is covered in the book of Numbers. Verse 2, take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of their names, uh, number of the names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their armies. And with you, there shall be a man from every tribe, each one the head of his father's house. So, 20 years old and above are the numbers of people being of the military-aged men who are being counted in the census because what is happening is God is preparing them for conquest. God is preparing them to fulfill the promise to take the promised land. However, those who are 20 years old and above, when they fail to enter into the promised land the first time, that is the age. This is where the, the idea of the age of accountability comes from, that those who were 20 years old and above, they were the ones who were not allowed to enter into the promised land except for two, which we'll cover a little bit later, except for two people. Everyone 19 and under were not held responsible for the indecision of going into the promised land. So Numbers chapter 2, as we dig in, we actually see the numbers being taken, and they count the tribes or at least the males 20 years and older, in the tribes. And you see how they are supposed to camp around the tabernacle as they count the tribes. So you have tribes that are camped on the north side of the tabernacle, on the south side, on the east side, and on the west side. So in each direction of the tabernacle, you have three tribes that are camping based on a specific direction. So the 12 tribes are camping around the tabernacle, three tribes in the north, three tribes in the south, three tribes in the east, three tribes on the west. Of those three tribes, one of them becomes the lead tribe, and they march under the banner of that specific tribe. Now that's not given to us in the book of Numbers, that's given to us in uh, the Midrash. 
from Jewish historical and rabbinical writings. But as you read through chapter two, which is somewhat typically boring reading and thing that, something that we like to skip over most of the time, these are the things that you find out. So the camp of Reuben, which will camp on the south side, has these numbers. The tribe of Reuben, which is the first tribe, so they march under the banner of Reuben. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, these three tribes march together on the south side. The number of, the, of military-aged men in Reuben is 46,500. The number of military-aged men in the tribe of Simeon is 59,300. The number of military-aged men in the tribe of Gad is 45,600, equaling 151,400 members marching on the south side of the tabernacle under the banner of the tribe of Reuben. And that banner would have been the face of a man. Now, on the west side, you have the tribe of Ephraim. And marching underneath the banner of Ephraim is the tribe of Manasseh and Benjamin. The tribe of Ephraim contained 40,500 men. The tribe of Manasseh contained 32,200 men. The tribe of Benjamin uh, contained 35,400 men, equaling 108,100 men. This is the smallest side uh, marching around the tabernacle. This is on the west side. Now on the north side, you have the tribe of Dan, and marching under Dan is Naphtali and Asher. So Naphtali, 52,700 men. Naphtali, uh, 53,400 men. Asher, 41,500 men to equal 157,600 men. Okay, so very similar on the north side in terms of total numbers as on the south side, around 100, just over 150,000 men. And then on the east side, which is the entrance to the tabernacle, you have the tribe of Judah, and marching under the tribe of Judah is Issachar and Zebulun. So anybody bored yet? Because numbers are so fun to talk about. Judah, 74,900 men. This is by far the largest tribe. Issachar, 4,400 men, the smallest tribe. Zebulun, 57,400 men for a total of 186,400 marching under the banner of Judah. Now, the banner for Reuben is the face of a man. The banner for Ephraim is an ox. The banner for Dan is an eagle, and the banner for Judah is a lion. And so what do you see? You see on the north and south, on the south side of the tabernacle, encampments straight to the east, and, or straight to the north and straight to the south. And they look very similar in size. And remember, because they are camping on both the north and the south side, they can't camp northwest, northeast, or southwest and southeast. They have to camp directly north and south because they're following God's orders. This is a straight line headed from the tabernacle, north and south, that look very equal in size. On the west side, you have the shortest camp of 108,000 men. And then on the east side, at the entrance of the tabernacle, you have the longest side camping directly east to the entrance of the tabernacle. And so what happens when you look at this from an aerial view is it actually looks like a cross. The people are marching in the shape of a cross through the desert as they wander around the, around the desert with the tabernacle. They're marching in the shape of a cross, with actually the head of the cross being the shortest, 
the foot of the cross being the longest and the two arms of the cross being equal in size because of the numbers of the tribes. And so God had a specific design. And it's very interesting when you see it from an aerial view. I have a picture of it. I will send you uh, an email with this visual. Um, if anybody's listening and wants an email of the individual or of the, uh, of the notes and wants the visual, you can email me at sfinley3185 at gmail.com. Now, there, are, there have been some interesting things noted that under the banner of those main tribes, the ones that camped closest to the tabernacle, you see four figures on those banners, a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Now, because we had studied the book of Revelation prior, bells should be ringing in your head because the four faces of the cherubim of the angels that are worshiping God in Revelation chapter 4, the four faces on those angels are a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, when Ezekiel is ushered into heaven and he sees the throne room, he sees the same thing, the same four faces, a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. So interestingly, this points us to the future. It points us to Christ. There's all sorts of pictures and symbolism hidden within the way that they camped around the tabernacle. So you're reading all of these numbers in this list of names, and it seems really boring. But when you get the picture, it becomes really exciting. Now, there have been some other things notated about the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. I don't give them a ton of credence, but I will share them with you in case you find them interesting. Um, some have noted that they think the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle might also be uh, represented in the Gospels. Let me explain. So the book of Matthew is focused on a lot of prophecy fulfillment. And one of the names of Jesus in prophecy would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. So you'd see the lion focused in the book of Matthew. Whether or not you give that credence, that's up to you. In Mark, Jesus is pictured as a servant. Uh, and the ox would be a servant because they do the tilling and the work and the farm work. Um, in Luke, the phrase son of man is used most often uh, because Luke paints a picture of Jesus's humanity, lion, ox, man. And then in John, you see a picture of divinity, um, the divinity of Christ and all of the I am statements and even John chapter one, starting out with the divinity of Christ. So you might see a picture of the eagle there. I don't give that a ton of credence. I think some of that might be a little bit stretching to get some extra symbolism out of this. I think there's enough. It doesn't need the Gospels to be represented, but um, you can certainly potentially see uh, that there might be some symbolism represented in the Gospels. Now, after the first couple of chapters, and you're doing a lot of counting and getting all of this, what you're seeing is the tabernacle getting consecrated, you're learning about the rules uh, to make sure you're purified and clean in the camps, um, because this is all about preparing the people to enter the Holy Land. And if they're entering the Holy Land, they need to be holy. Um, so you're seeing a lot of purification and preparation for that, up until the point where the people start complaining, which is around chapter 11. Um, but they start complaining as they are about to head into the Promised Land at Kadesh Barnea, which is a place south of the Promised Land. And in between them and the Promised Land is the country of Edom, or the nation of Edom. And at this point, in Numbers 13, 
Moses is going to send spies into the land. So I want to give you a few names, and I want to hear your response. So I'll give you these names. Shemua, Shaphat, Igal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sether, Nahbi, and Guel. Any of those names sound particularly familiar to any of you? They, sh- they shouldn't. Then nobody remembers these people, right? Uh, nobody does. But they are the names of 10 of the 12 spies that went into the land of Canaan on their first trip. The other two are Joshua and Caleb. Do those names sound a little more familiar? Exactly. So in Numbers 13, the first two verses state this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel from each tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man, everyone, a leader among them. So 10 10 men from 10 tribes. So the 10 tribes are Shemua from the tribe of Reuben, Shaphat from the tribe, uh, tribe of Simeon, Egal from the tribe of Issachar, Palti from the tribe of Benjamin, Gadiel from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadi from Manasseh, Amiel from Dan, Sether from Asher, uh, Nabi from Naphtali, and Guel from Gad. Those are the 10, tr- ten of the members of the, of the spies and their 10 tribes that they're associated with. Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. And Joshua, or Hosea, um, he may be, it may be written either way in your Bible, um, is from the tribe of Ephraim. Again, you don't see Levi added because the Levites are separate and set apart to do the priestly work. The 10, they go into the land. And actually, in in chapter 13, as they're spying out the land, this is some of what they see. There's actually a verse, I think it's verse 27, where it says that they cut a branch off of the vine, and then two of the men carried it together like a pole to carry one bunch of grapes. This is to show how plentiful and how productive the land of Israel was because God had promised them that he's sending them to the land of milk and honey. So it takes two people to carry one bunch of grapes. This is how productive the land was. And this is what they, they see that the land they were told they were going to get and what they were promised is accurate. God is giving them the promised land. It is flowing with milk and honey. It is plentiful. It is a beautiful place. It is productive. It is a great place to live. But they also see fortified cities, high walls, large people, and they get scared. And so they come back with a report. And the report pretty much goes like this. Joshua and Caleb say this. It's exactly what God described. Let's take the land. God has given it to us. And those are the two guys we remember. The 10 people we don't remember are the naysayers. Those 10 guys come back and say, yes, there is, it's great in there, but it's also terrifying. The people are huge. There's fortified cities. We look like ants to them. There's no way we can conquer them. The 10 see a circumstance that they can't overcome. The two see a promise and a God that can overcome their obstacles. And so we often have to ask ourselves, who are we? Who do I look like? Do I often look at God 
or do I look at my circumstance? Do I believe God's an overcomer who can help me overcome, or am I a naysayer? And even though God has promised me stuff, my circumstances seem too big to overcome because my faith is so small. So that's the question. And what you see in the lives of the Israelites is that negativity spreads. And it spreads like wildfire. And because of this negativity and because of the naysayers, they were denied entrance to the promised land for everyone that was 20 and over. And so then, what could have been a two-year journey, it's an 11-day walk. The whole thing is an 11-day walk from Egypt to the promised land. But these first two years were given in preparation. These were slaves that need to become an army. And God's giving them time to prepare, and they deny God as they go to enter the promised land. And so it's given to a different generation to be the ones who enter the promised land. And interestingly, as we go through the whole book of Numbers, what you're going to see is a lot of counting and names. You're going to see a lot of complaints and negativity, a few stories here and there. But there's not a whole lot. This is 40 years of wandering in the desert. There's not even 40 chapters in the book of Numbers. Why? Probably because God's not really interested in writing about the wasted time of people who didn't listen to him. And I got to be honest, in my own life, if I was going to write a biography about my time serving God, there'd probably be a lot, a lot of stuff not written because of wasted time. Just like every biography you've ever read, there's a lot of not written stuff because of wasted time. But the negativity spreads, and this is what you see. And I'm just going to give a few examples of the complaints that the Israelites have. As they're approaching the place where they're going to send in the spies in chapter 11, they are complaining about the fact that they really want meat because they only have manna to eat miraculously every day. Manna is provided for them. It shows up every single day miraculously. But they've gotten so used to God's miracles that they scorn them and say, this isn't good enough. I want meat. And so as is actually the truth historically about the, the Sinai Desert, is every, God sends quail through them. And, and this is actually recorded in Egyptian history as well, that through this area of the desert, quail would fly really low and slow through this area of the desert because they would get tired from their journey and they would be really easy to capture. And so people capture the meat, but God's frustration with them, those who indulged, in their complaints and eating of the quail, actually die at the end of chapter 11. In chapter 12, you see Aaron and Miriam, the brother and sister of Moses, complain about Moses' wife because Moses married a woman from Ethiopia. She wasn't part of the tribe and the herd. Um, and so you actually see God deal with racism in the Old Testament. Um, what happens to Aaron and Miriam? Miriam is struck with leprosy at her uh, rejection of Moses' wife. But she spends seven days outside of the camp per their purication. That's described in some of the earlier chapters of Numbers. And she's allowed back in and healed because of Moses' prayer for her. But God does not accept their treatment of Moses' wife. In number 16, you see a, a rebellion uh, led by guys named Dathan and Abiram as they grumble against Moses. 
and his leadership. And this is after, by the way, number 16 is after the spies have been sent in and the whole camp of Israel has decided that they don't want to go in, that they can't take it. And so now Dathan and Abiram lead grumbling against Moses and they say, can't believe you let us out here into the wilderness to die. Remember what it was like in Egypt? We had food for free. Now, all we have is this manna. We don't have water all the time. Now, they rejected God. They rejected God giving them over to the promised land to a place where they would have had everything they desired. And now they're complaining about Moses' leadership because they rejected what God had for them. This is ridiculous. And what you see towards the end of, end of number 16 is that the earth opens up and swallows 250 people and then fire comes out from the opening of the earth. I have heard and I have read in commentaries, don't quote me directly on this, but Dathan and Abiram might actually have been half Jewish and half Egyptian. And this might have been uh, a judgment on like purifying the Hebrew line um, and getting, basically you can, take the, you can take the slaves out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of them if it's built in them and they are still stuck on this. Remember how good it was when we were slaves? Uh, which doesn't make sense. In number 17, you have uh, a rebellion led by Korah and they're sick of, the, of seeing the leadership that Moses and Aaron have, especially Aaron, they want some of that authority. They've been wandering around in the desert and they've seen all this and, and they're not in the promised land like they thought they were going to be and uh, they don't understand. So they have a gripe against Aaron and they want to take his place. So then you see the story about Moses uh, taking 12 staffs and writing the names of the tribes on the staffs and then he replaces the name of Levi with Aaron and he puts him in the tabernacle and sees what happens and the one that's named after Aaron buds almond blossoms and that's how they decide who the high priest is still going to be. Um, and we talked about this a little bit in Exodus because these are dead branches. They're ripped off pieces. They're not connected to anything living. But out of their death, vegetation sprouted out of Aaron's staff. Um, out of death came life. And Aaron's staff actually ends up being one of the, one of the items in the Ark of the Covenant in representing, being a representation of Christ, out of death, life. And then we get all the way to Numbers 20. Now, by the time we get to Numbers chapter 20, 37 years have gone by. Really 39 in total of wandering, but 37 years of the book of Numbers have gone by. Uh, and the rest of the book of Numbers really covers one year. In Numbers chapter 20, you see the death of Miriam and the death of Aaron. And within that same year, Moses dies. Uh, after he gives his final sermon, which is the next book, Deuteronomy. So the rest of this all takes place in very short order. But Numbers 20, the people of Israel are already in trouble with God. Numbers chapter 20 is how Moses gets in trouble with God. So we're going to focus in and actually zoom in on this piece of scripture. So we're going to read Numbers 21 through 13. It says, Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. They're back where they started before they went in to spy out the land. They're back in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, there was no water for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brothers died before the Lord. 
Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? These people are so dramatic. Every time it's, would you? I know God keeps providing for us every time we complain, but it seems like you're just trying to kill us out in the wilderness, even though God keeps providing for us. I, how often do we do that in our own lives? We see God provide for us, but it's not enough. So I'm going to complain because it's not what I wanted. Not everything I, it's not everything I need. I don't have all my answers yet. So I'm still going to complain against God. Verse 5. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Now, the fact that there's not water to drink, that's a legitimate argument. <clears throat> and you'll see how God responds to that complaint in comparison to how Moses responds to that complaint. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod before the Lord as he commanded him. So they have a legitimate complaint. They're thirsty. They have no water. They're in the desert. That's rough. God has mercy on them. And God has compassion. And he says, Moses and Aaron, take the rod. Go to the rock. Speak to the rock in front of the congregation so that they can see me work. Now, in Exodus, Moses was commanded to strike a rock and water came out. But this time, they're going to see, they're supposed to see the compassion of God. Just speak to the rock, and water will come out. Water for them and for their animals. And Moses takes the rod with him, but then verse 10 says this, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and the animals drank. So Moses, the leader who represents the law, had no compassion. Uh, and he was frustrated with these people. He's been frustrated with them for four decades. And he takes his anger out on the rock, and he strikes it twice, and water comes out abundantly. Now this to me, is also a picture of Christ. Now, Jesus is the rock. That's one of the nicknames we give him. The leader, the religious leader, beat the rock with anger in front of the congregation. But out of that rock came life, flowing water abundantly for the people. Verse 12, Then the Lord said, spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So both Aaron and Moses are not allowed into Israel. Now Moses and Aaron, we forget about Aaron sometimes, but Moses and Aaron performed miracles in front of Pharaoh. They were the reason that the exodus happened, and both of them not allowed into the promised land. This was the water of Meribah, and its name is because the children of Israel contended with the Lord. 
and he was hallowed among them. He was made holy to the people. And so now we're going to see a shift. People are now, they're grumbling, but we're going to start moving towards the next generation from this point forward. But before we do, there is a, an interesting story in the next chapter, in uh, Numbers 21. Uh, so starting in verse 4, it says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor, from where Moses and Aaron were, and Mount Hor is where Aaron died, by the way of the Red Sea. So they're headed south uh, to go around the land of Edom, and the soul against the people uh, the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Now, here's what's happening. They were in Kadesh, just south of Edom, and the promised land was just north of them. Moses was denied entry into Edom by the Edomites. Even though he offered to not do anything, to not even look to the right or the left, he was just going to travel through, Moses was denied entry by the people of Edom. I actually, there's a lot of this that's very interesting. So because they were denied entry into the promised land through Edom, which Edom are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, Israel's brother. So they're supposed to have compassion on the Edomites. They're not supposed to go to war with them at this point in time. Um, But because of this moment, you'll see a lot of fights between Edom and Israel as we go through the Old Testament and the ultimate result of this. So you'll see more as we go through the book of Habakkuk Um, and things like that. So they go around Edom, and they're headed south to go around Edom, and they actually enter the promised land from the east, which I find very interesting because the tabernacle's entrance was on the east. So the entrance to the promised land is on the east. I'm sure you can see some of the symbolism in that. The entrance to worship is from the east. But anyway, uh, spoke against God, against Moses, Uh, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? So again, here's that same complaint. There is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Now in Exodus, they were talking about how it tasted like honey. Now they're just scorning God's miracle. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So fiery serpents, so snakes, were sent along the people, and they were biting people, um, and people died from the poison in the snakes. So, verse 7, Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, the serpent happens to be a symbol of sin. So you have a real physical ailment. The serpents are biting them and killing them from their venom. But on a spiritual note, Serpents are representative of sin. And Moses is praying for the serpents to be taken away from them. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So the serpent is a symbol of sin. Bronze is a metal that represents judgment. So there is a symbol of sin made out of the metal of judgment that's put on a piece of wood and lifted up. A symbol of sin that is judged, 
put on a piece of wood, lift it up, that when you look at it, you get healed if you have faith in it. This is why Jesus said something very interesting. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he said this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us and took on the judgment for us as he was lifted up on a piece of wood, just like the serpent in the wilderness, a symbol of sin, set in judgment, lifted up on a piece of wood. The picture of Christ is very clear in Numbers 21. Now, after this, you get a few chapters of a very interesting character. We covered him in our Revelation study, but we're just going to go over real quick. So, There is Balak, who is the king of Moab. They are heading through Moab to get to the east side of the promised land, east of the Jordan, so they can enter in. The king of Moab does not like this. He wants to destroy Israel. Um, And so he hires Balaam. Balaam is this prophet, sorcerer, diviner, who, even though he seems to have the ability for prophecy, and he actually notates that Yahweh is his God, he uses his gift for evil purposes, um, and he uses it for selfish purposes. So Balaam is hired by Balak, the king of Moab. He hires this, this prophet, Balaam, um, to curse Israel. But after he is hired, God confronts him, and he says, I will not allow you to curse Israel. They are blessed. And so Balaam tells Balak's men, says, I can't. I can't go against the word of God. He is only allowing them to be blessed. I can't curse them. So they leave. Then Balak sends more people to try to come and get Balaam because he really wants his help. He tries to really recruit Balaam. And Balaam says, I already told you, I can't do it. God will not curse these people. I cannot do outside of what God wants. But let me talk to him anyway. So even though he already knows God's answer, Balaam ignores what God has said, and he's pleading for his, he really wants to sin. <laughs> he really wants to go against what God says. I don't know if you've ever been there. I think we all probably have. We know what is good for us, but we really desire what isn't. Um, and that's Balaam in this moment. He really wants to get paid. He's after the money. And so God finally says, okay, fine, go with them. You still can't curse the people of Israel, but go with them. Go see Balak. And on the way, Balaam's donkey stops in the middle of the road um, and won't let him go because the angel of the Lord appears before the donkey. Balaam doesn't see it. Angel of the Lord appears before the donkey. The donkey stops. This happens a few times, and Balaam gets really irritated with his donkey, and he starts hitting him, and then the donkey talks to him. This is one of the weirdest places in in Scripture. And the donkey basically says, uh, Hey, haven't I been your donkey forever? Have I ever disobeyed you like this? Think about it, Balaam. Um, And then all of a sudden he sees the angel of the Lord and he realizes, oh no, I've made a huge mistake. And he gets orders. He can't curse the people of Israel. Um, And so he, he doesn't curse the people of Israel. He's only allowed to bless them. However, we find out in Revelation and through other, there's a lot actually about Balaam in scripture, that really what he did was he told the king of Moab, there's no way. God's not cursing these people. The only thing you can do is try to trap them in sin. I can't do anything, but 
you might be able to trap them in their own sin so that God will not bless them. And so the king of Moab actually sends young women into the camp of Israel to participate in some of the pagan practices which are of a sexual nature um, and leads the people into sin. Um, But they still move forward. After all of this, you finally get to a place where they take the next census. And so you're now dealing with the next generation. Um, And these are the ones who are ready to go into the promised land. But interestingly, Balaam says something. Balaam does seem to have a gift. He uses it for evil purposes. But we get this verse in Numbers 24, where Balaam states a prophecy. He says this, verse 17. These are Balaam prophesying. I see him, but not now. So he sees him in the future. Who is him? I behold him, but not near. So it's far into the future. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. So he's saying, and a lot lot of scholars, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. The star out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. Now in Genesis 49, you see that the scepter will not leave the hand of Judah. So you know that this guy is going to be from the tribe of Judah. And through other prophecies, you know he's going to be the son of David. He will be related directly to David. But that word, a star shall come out of Jacob, there are some who actually think that this is the reason that the wise men followed the star at Jesus' birth. Because of this prophecy here, when they were reading the ancient texts left in Babylon. Um, Because of the influence, likely, of Daniel and his influence left over the people uh, in Babylon, as they read this, they see a weird star and they head towards the people, the people of Israel, potentially because of this prophecy here. And so very interestingly, you see this picture of Christ. And I just wanted to share that with you. So Balaam, even though he tries to be selfish with the gifts that he's given, God still uses him. So I, I see this as similarly to Pharaoh. God, God's story is going to be completed by him no matter what. You are not choosing whether or not you are in his story. You just think you're making yourself the star of your own story when really God is choosing how he's going to use you in his story. And are you going to be on his side or his enemies? Are you going to be cursed? Are you going to be blessed? Uh, Because Balaam turns out actually gets killed by the sword as they go into conquest um, Israel. So he he ends up being on the cursed side of things because he chooses to be selfish with his gift just like Pharaoh was selfish in his own right and tried to put himself in the place of God. Uh, So who are you going to be? Which side of the story do you want to end up on? Now in Numbers uh, 25 and 26, you see the failure of the people as the king of Moab brings those women into the camp. And the second census begins. So this is where we're going to finish up. Numbers 27 verses 15 through 23. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. So, the census is going to start. Now Moses is being told by God, 
to set someone over the congregation. So who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. The Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, or Hosea, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar, the priest, and before all the congregation. Eleazar is the son of Aaron. He's the new high priest. And inaugurate him in their sight. You shall give some of your authority to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar, the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord by him the judgment of the Urim. So the, whatever was hidden under the high priest's garments, those are the judgment being made by Joshua to be the next leader. At his word, they shall go out, and at his word, they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded. He took Joshua, set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation. He laid his hands on him and inaugurated him, just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Moses is out. Moses, the leader. Moses, the guy who brought the law. He's the representative of the law. He is being replaced because Moses, the law, is not what gets you into the promised land. Who does? Joshua or Yeshua, a man who shares the name with Jesus. The law wasn't good enough. Jesus is. And that's where we're going to end tonight. Father God, thank you for the book of Numbers. I can't believe we got through it. Um, thank you so much for all the lessons that we can be learned. I'm sorry for all the lessons we skipped, but we hope to go back over it in the future. Um, but God, thank you for the, the highlights, for the things that point us directly to your son. We know, and we can know for sure, just as he said, if you believed Moses, you would believe in me because Moses wrote about me. It's clear in our study, Moses wrote about Jesus. Jesus is our Messiah. Help us to have faith, trust, and most importantly, love in him. In Jesus' name, amen.